The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church tonight. We're glad that you're here for our Lord's Table service. We have the elements uh, in the back, which many of you may not have picked up a... Uh, a set. I have not, so I'm going to have to go sneak back sometime and do that. But you're welcome to do that whenever you wish. All right, Second Kings, please, for our scripture reading tonight. I want to keep working at this project of reading through the Bible, and a big one it is, one chapter a time. And we don't even make that sometimes, but it would take us over a thousand. Is that can that be? Is there that many chapters? Yeah, there's over a thousand chapters in the Bible. Over a thousand services to get through the Scriptures this way? Alright, Second Kings uh, and chapter 22 this time. Josiah was eight years old when he became, became king and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Boscath. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Remember, we read that last time just to kind of give us a word of encouragement after the lengthy reign of Manasseh, which was a bad scene in Israel. or uh, Well, yeah, Israel, Judah. But in any case, Josiah. Verse 3, Now it came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah that the king, of, king sent Shaphan the scribe, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money which has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people, and let them deliver it into the hand of those doing the work, who are the overseers in the house of the Lord. Let them give it to those who are in the house of the Lord, doing the work, to repair the damages of the house, to carpenters and builders and masons, and to buy timber and hewn stone to repair the house." However, there need be no accounting made with them of the money delivered into their hand because they deal faithfully. Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Talk about finding a diamond in the dust. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. So Shaphan the scribe went to the king, bringing the king word, saying, Your servants have gathered the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of those who do the work, who oversee the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Now, how long had it been since this had happened? Any ideas? Well, Manasseh was 12 years old when he reigned, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And uh, Ammon reigned a couple more years after that. Hezekiah was the king before that. So you've got to figure there was at least five decades in which this was lost. That is a long time without God's Word. Five days is a long time without God's Word. Five decades? Hmm. Now it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahikim the son of Shaphan, Akbor the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Asiah, a servant of the king, saying, Go 
Inquire of the Lord for me, for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So how old was Hilkiah, or Josiah rather when this happened? The 18th year plus 826 is a young man still. And he realizes with great fear, uh-oh, we're in big time trouble. So Hilkiah the priest, the Hikem, Akbor, Shaphan, and Asiah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. She dwelt in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they spoke with her. And she said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants, all the words of the book which the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods, and they, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath shall be aroused against this place and shall not be quenched. But as for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, in this manner you shall speak to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, concerning the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they would become a desolation and a curse, and you tore your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, says the Lord. Surely, therefore, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see the calamity which I will bring on this place. So they brought back word to the king. The gracious forestalling of the judgment of God for 31 years because he had a man who did right in the sight of the Lord. Wow. We'll see some more uh, good things about Josiah uh, later on in our next reading. For now then, I'd like to ask you to turn to John chapter 13. And John chapter 13 is the portion that I have been studying. I got onto this track a couple of weeks ago and just said, I'm going to start studying John 13 for some reason. I don't even remember the initial impetus that got me into it, but uh, it's been a good study. And I have a fairly lengthy set of notes on it, um, 10 pages of the notes that you, you usually get. So you know there's a lot of material here. We've already gone over the first three of those pages in which the text deals with Christ's washing of the disciples' feet. And that we've used that text as the basis of our Lord's table services before, as it uh, doing as it does, you know, it um, you know demonstrates the love of Christ for the disciples and humble service uh, that He offers to them, gives them an example that they should likewise do to one another. But so we've gone over that, and now the next segment of the chapter, which we were going to look at last Sunday night, but I think our Question time got a little extended beyond what I had anticipated or the, the message that I was finishing up from before. So we didn't get here yet. So we're just going to keep on plowing ahead in this context. This may not be the um, most uplifting and uh, inspiring text of Scripture because it deals with the betrayal of the Lord. And uh, it's in John 13, verse 18 through 30. 
The Betrayer. I entitled this section of the message, The Betrayer, with application to us that we must be genuine in our faith. We must be genuine in our faith. So first of all, the betrayer is predicted in verses 18 to 21, which, say, which says this, I do not speak concerning all of you. Remember, he's talking about cleansing them. They're all clean, but not all of them. There's one that's not. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Verse 21, when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Jesus says that in what he has spoken up to now, uh, about the cleansing, about him, those that are bathed only need to wash their feet and they're completely clean if they're bathed. You know, saved is what he's talking about there. Uh, what he's been speaking about has not been directed at all of the disciples. Rather, only the chosen ones are spoken of in the passage about being clean and being servants and following Jesus' example and, and all of those things. These were the eleven. And perhaps there were other ones with them who are not of the twelve. I'm thinking of some of the ladies that may have been with them serving the table. I don't know. It doesn't tell us. But that certainly would make some sense that there were others there serving at the supper. This choosing that Jesus has talked about in 18, I know whom I have chosen, is more than the selection of these ones as apostles. Um, Back in Luke, it does talk about that. And I'll just read a verse for you quickly. It's in Luke chapter 6 and verse uh, 13. See if I have my address right this time. Yes, and when it was day, after he had prayed all night to God, when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. He chose twelve. So, yes, he did choose them, but this choosing is more than the choosing to be an apostle. Those twelve that he chose. This selection, this choosing, this election is about salvation as well as about apostleship. So, for example, in John 15, verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Speaking, of course, again to the disciples. And in verse 19 of John 15, um, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now that has a broader application than just to the disciples, but to all the believers in Christ. And then in uh, Acts 9.15, the Scripture says, um, but the Lord said to me, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. There's another one where Paul this time was a chosen vessel. But if we go to the broader level, we see a correlation between this choosing and every, the choosing of every believer unto salvation. 
where could I go to show you that? Well, I could go to Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 4, it says, speaking of blessing God, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. And then 2 Thessalonians Chapter 2, verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation. So these are just plain texts that teach that no matter what the struggle that you might have with understanding election or choosing, there they are. But he says, I didn't choose all of you. I know whom I have chosen for salvation and for true apostleship, but the Lord chose one also to be the instrument of His betrayal. He knew that was the will of God. That must have been a hard thing to do, humanly speaking. We already indicated that it seems the Lord served Judas by washing His feet. How humbling. Now, it says, interesting here, after he talks about this, not all are, not all of you twelve are chosen, um, but one is not, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now listen to the scripture: He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. You familiar with where that comes from? I'm going to find a copy of this in Psalm 41, verse nine. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Lifted up his heel against me. We're in the process of crushing the head of the serpent. The heel of our Lord, as it were, was bruised. But this is the heel of another which is lifted up against the Lord Jesus. Uh, this psalm is speaking of the blessing and, and suffering of the godly. Um, talks about blessing of those who consider the poor and uh, preserve him and keep the Lord will preserve him and keep him alive and he will be blessed on the earth. The Lord will strengthen him on his bed of illness. You will sustain him on his sickbed. I said, the Lord be merciful to me, heal my soul and so in verse 5, my enemies speak evil of me. When will he die and his name perish? You know, they're like, man, good riddance to that guy. They want to get rid of him. And if he comes to see me, he speaks lies. His heart gathers iniquity to itself. When he goes out, he tells it. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me, they devise my hurt. An evil disease, they say, clings to him. And now that he lies down, he will rise up no more. It's kind of like, you know, parentheses, ha, 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 they're happy. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be merciful to me and raise me up that I may repay them. So some would read this text in John 13 and they would immediately uh, conclude that this psalm must be a prophecy about Christ. But this approach will lead them badly astray because the psalm is not a prophecy at all. It is a general statement of King David about the righteous ones. 
we just read most of that psalm, you can see that. There is no way that a reader in David's day could have guessed, could have even made a wild guess that this applies to, that this is a prophecy rather of the Messiah. You could have maybe after Isaiah 53 was written, made a statement to say, well, that sounds something like Psalm 41. But even so, what, there's not that nature of that of the text in the Psalm in, the, in Isaiah about my familiar friend lifting up his heel against me. So, the Psalm was not about the Messiah. Rather, it's about godly people. The rectitude of the godly person, the Psalm says, is proven by his behavior. He helps the poor and those things that we read at the beginning of the of the chapter of the Psalm in Psalm 41. David is confident that God will protect such righteous people despite many enemies that seek to do him harm. Among those who were counted as an enemy of David in his experience was one who was known as a friend before and turned against him. This status... You know, it's one thing if your enemy is your enemy. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? But it's a whole other thing if a friend becomes an enemy. That hurts. That really hurts. I hope you understand that. That's that's something that maybe you've experienced, we've experienced. This status of former friendship made his later opposition even more galling. But still, David trusts the Lord and trusts that God will deliver him. And so, what John is saying and what Jesus is saying John is recording, rather, is that a similar situation is going to happen to him. Jesus is the pinnacle example par excellence of the righteous person. And somebody is going to lift up his heel against him. That, I think, that kind of manner of explanation helps us because you see that in a number of Psalms. Uh, the righteous are spoken of in a general fashion and Jesus takes those to himself and and knowing the Scripture so well, he says, look, what was written there is happening to me. Again, just like Psalm 41 here happening to him with, with his enemy, formerly friend, as it were, Judas. And this is the point of parallel or fulfillment as Jesus calls it. He, he did not consider this fulfillment as making a prophecy come to pass, nor did he consider it as changing the meaning of the psalm from the surface meaning. He didn't change it to a deeper meaning. He regarded his life and present situation as the ultimate example of a righteous person. In that sense, he perfectly fit the pattern of the psalm, which is a lament. Part of it's a, a song of trust, but then there's the part that's a lament. Judas was about to betray him. This man had spent years with the Messiah. He had no excuse to lift up your heel against somebody. That is a strong statement of opposition. Judas would have been better for him if he had just been ambivalent. You know, like, eh, take him or leave him. But it wasn't that. It was active, hateful opposition. He loved money more than loyalty. 
He loved money and fame or whatever more than God, more than his friend. What a, what a flawed man he demonstrates himself to be. That's all verse 18. In 19, the disciples are told something by Jesus to prepare them for what is about to happen. See this, I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am He. That's the mark of a prophet, you know, when he says something is going to come to pass and then it does come to pass. Reminds me of John chapter 11. Just before Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he calls out to God and says, you know, not for, not for my sake, but for those around me have I prayed this way so that they might know what I am about to do and they might believe in the Messiah. That's John 11 and verse 42. And I know you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. So you get these little nuggets once in a while in Scripture that tell us exactly why Jesus said the things that He said. He said it so that people would believe in Him. Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18 tell us how to tell, tell us how to determine or ascertain if a prophet is real. Uh, if he tells you something that doesn't come to pass, you know he's not real. If he tells you to follow another God, you know he's not real. But if he tells you follow the true God and, and some future prediction comes to pass, then you know that he is of, of the Lord. What better better way for somebody to tell you in advance here that something is going to come to pass. Uh, He would have had no knowledge or insight into this humanly, merely humanly. And he did so on multiple occasions over the years, this kind of thing. Uh, Think of Nathaniel. Where did Jesus see him? Under the fig tree? I saw you. And he says, how do you know that? Oh, I, I saw you, Jesus told him. Or Matthew chapter 16, after the great confession of Peter, Jesus tells them that he will be abused by the authorities and, and the Gentiles and he will be crucified and resurrect on the third day. And he prophesied that in advance. A number of times, at least three major times in the ministry of the disciples. And they didn't quite get it until after he rose from the dead. And then they, they remembered that he said those things to them. Now the Lord speaks a general truth in 20. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. So there's kind of a three-part sending here. God sent Christ. Christ sends an apostle or a believer to minister to somebody. And if you are that person and you're well received by the audience, then what they're saying is, we actually receive Christ, the one who sent you. And in saying that, then they're saying we receive also the testimony of God who sent Him. You know, you have to honor the Son as you claim to honor the Father. John 5.23 tells us that. So, And if you do that, you will have a level of honor for the messengers, the missionaries, the evangelists, pastors who bring the gospel to you, he's saying, 
And if somebody, you know, doesn't receive the minister who's giving the correct message of the gospel, then they're showing they don't receive Christ. They don't receive Christ. They don't honor God. And so the whole chain breaks down. Of course, we're assuming faithful ministers, faithful evangelists. Not perfect necessarily, of course. None are. But uh, they preach Christ and people must take heed to them. Judas is the quintessential example of one who did not receive the love of God in Christ. And that's what we're talking about. The betrayer. We must be genuine in our faith, unlike Judas who was just a fraud just an an empty one for the Lord. So now he's identified, verses 22 through 27. You know, you only have a one out of 12 chance of getting it right in here. And they're wondering, the disciples are wondering. You know, they looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Who is it of us 12 who could ever do such a thing like that? I mean, they just thought it was incredible. They thought they were a closely cohesive team, that there was no breaking in the ranks, there was no opposition, there was no heart of stone amongst them. Who is it? Verse 23, Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom, this is at the Last Supper, you know, one of His disciples whom Jesus loved, Simon Peter therefore motioned to Him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. How do you picture that? In my office? Oh, that, yeah, that part, yeah. I'm thinking there, that's when they were posing for the picture that you see in my office, the Last Supper. Uh, they're all on one side of the table and the picture is taken from the other side of the table. It doesn't work like that. They were all about and, uh, you know, apparently Jesus and and John were here, and you know Peter maybe at the opposite corner over here, and he's like, "Hey, you know, tell him, ask him, figure it out, you know, whisper to him, do something. Um, we got to get some news here, some information." And so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, "Lord, who is it?" Now, you've got to imagine, I don't know how the situation is, but there must have been some noise around the table or something. I mean, everybody's in an uproar. Who is this person that's going to betray Christ? And they're, you know, this guy's talking to this guy, and da 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 da, you know, around. There's several maybe conversations going on, and, and John discreetly says to the Lord, Who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. This is kind of insider information here. Not everybody was aware of what was going on. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. Or some thought because Judas had the money box that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, then he went out immediately and it was night. So he's identified. 
He identifies. He knows who it is. Jesus does. He knows who it is. It's not a, a guess for him. He knew they were not all clean. The disciples are perplexed and they figure out who it is. And then it's very sad, this statement, after he had given the piece of bread, Satan entered into him. We can't claim that Satan caused us to sin. Our flesh is enough to do that without any help from the outside or from the spiritual realm. But this job was so critical in Satan's plan that he didn't leave anything to chance. He took up residence in Judas and he inspired him, as it were, to do the dirty deed of betraying the Lord. Now, this was not against Judas's will. Judas was not a pawn of spiritual forces beyond his control. He did not love the Lord. He was a thief. He evidenced that by stealing out of the bag that they had for the common treasury of their group. As the disciples looked back, they could see the signals that this man was not genuine. But at the time, it was not evident to them. It was hard for them to, to see how that could be the case. And so they wondered at this turn of events. And in fact, after he went out, even most of those at the table didn't know what was going on, but Peter and John evidently knew what's going on. Wow, what a, what a thing to experience all of that. So I've alluded to the applications from this already, but let me just highlight them again. First of all, like, you know, contrary to Judas, we need to avoid the greed, evidently, that drove his character. Maybe there are other things too, but certainly greed was one of them. Back in John chapter 12, I alluded to this already, but in verse number 6, Judas said this not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and used to take what was put in it. So avoiding greed and and acknowledge that there are false disciples out there sometimes who may seem very close to the things of God, but we need to hone in on these two ideas a little bit more. The problem that we're talking about may not only be Judas. There may be others among our own number or our close acquaintances who profess faith in Christ who are of this sort hidden greed, hidden lust, hidden sin, lack of love for the Lord. Some of us may be that. Some of us may be false disciples willing to sell our church brothers and sisters for a few bucks or 15 minutes of fame. We need to check up on ourselves and make sure that we are genuinely in the faith. I'm not trying to scare anybody, but if you need to be scared, be scared. (laughs) You know? While Jesus offers to cleanse you entirely by His cross work and wash your feet daily, do you sit there like a stone like Judas when Jesus washed His feet and ignore your conscience? Do you think that you shall escape divine judgment because of your attendance at religious functions? Do you think you'll be okay because of your parents' faith or because you're a pretty good person? None of that is the good news of Jesus Christ. Only His finished cross work can save. Only a personal connection to Him 
can save. That's why we labor to talk about faith. Faith is not in facts. Faith is in part related to facts, but faith is in the person of the Lord Jesus. I hope you understand the distinction. Anybody can believe facts. Even facts about Jesus' death, resurrection, and death for sin and all of that. But it's faith into Him. A personal commitment to Him, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the Gospel. Judas didn't believe that. He had abandoned that or any hope of that long ago. And he was just giving evidence or fruit now of what he really was all about. And so he went out immediately and it was night. Well, I'll just give you a little sketch of the rest of the chapter because we don't have time to get to all the details here. But I'll say this. Jesus then tells the disciples, I am leaving and you can't be with me at the moment where I'm going. So when He had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him immediately. Now, I won't get into that one tonight. That's a a tough uh, tongue twister. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek Me. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you. And then verse 36, Simon Peter said to Him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterwards. Afterwards. So, where is he going? Well, John 7.33 says, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we should not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this that he said, you will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? And then chapter 8 and verse 21, Jesus said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. That's even more ominous. They won't be able to go there if they don't believe in Him. So the Jews said, will He kill Himself because He says, where I go, you cannot come? And He said to them, you are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. And So there's kind of two ways in which the Lord uses this idea of I'm leaving and where I am going, you cannot come. One is... If you don't believe that He's the Messiah, you cannot go there at all, ever, to heaven. But if you're a disciple, He says you cannot go now. You've got to wait. And that's the sense that is used here in John 13. You, you will want to. You'll see me. You won't see me. And then you'll see me briefly again. And then uh, I'll go to heaven and you won't be able to go there. Of course, Peter very zealously wants to go now. Let's go now. We cannot be with Jesus immediately. Peter, you cannot be. The other disciples cannot be. And neither can we, my friends. We have to wait 
We have the Lord's table in part to remind us of the Lord's life and death until when He comes. So we have to wait until we pass away naturally or until He comes and supernaturally we get to that point of seeing Him. So uh, the reality of the absent Jesus means that we need to be patient, doesn't it? We have to be patient. We can hasten the the return of the Lord in a sense, Peter talks about, I think by ministering extra hard for Him, ministering the Gospel and seeing more people to be saved and all of that. But we have to be patient and await His coming. Peter, we know you're zealous, but you've got to wait. And all the other disciples as well. Um... How do you feel about the coming of the Lord? How do you feel about being with Jesus? If you don't have a good feeling about that, that's a bad thing. You know what I'm saying? If we feel nothing about His absence, I mean, if there's no longing in our hearts, then we haven't come very far in our knowledge of the Lord or maybe at all. And so I just encourage you about that. Think about that. If you maybe sometimes find yourself saying, How long, O Lord? That's, you need to have patience, but it's a good thing. You know what I mean? It's a good thing. But if you have nothing like that, like, Boy, I hope the Lord doesn't come. He's really going to interrupt my plans. You know? No. You don't want, you don't want to have that attitude. You don't want to have that attitude. So, Jesus is, you know, he's in the upper room discourse here, preparing the disciples for what's coming. And uh, we'll pick up here and kind of review this again uh, the next time that we have opportunity. But I hope that that's somewhat helpful. The betrayer reminds us that we must be genuine in our faith. Jesus washing the disciples' feet is an example of humble service for us. And that's what we ought to do to one another. Those are the lessons thus far in our chapter here before us. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that You would help us to be certain that we are with You and that we long for Christ's return and that we are not frauds like Judas And I pray not only for us here tonight, Lord, because I know all of us and our profession of faith, perhaps some of the young people would do well to examine themselves, especially to make sure that they are walking with You. But I also think of those that were here this morning and those among our wider circle of family and acquaintances who maybe even profess the Lord but really don't care about Him. And Lord, I pray that You would bring them to a point of examination, of evaluation, of testing to see if they be in the faith. If they have this kind of expectant awaiting for the Lord in their hearts or if it's more like they're interested in the things of the world and wouldn't be too far off from being like Judas 
Oh Lord, we ask for your help and work in their lives. We humbly acknowledge, Lord, that although sometimes we wish that we could impart to them a, a special word and mindset to wake them up to the things of God and those are unsaved family members that they would that they would finally receive the knowledge of the truth. But we cannot do this. We can share the Word which is power, the power of God to salvation, but they need the work of the Spirit of God as well to work in their hearts. And so we commend them to You. But help us not to have uh, just others in our minds as we think of these things. Help us to have ourselves in mind that any tendency in our hearts that is like Judas, that You would extirpate it, remove it, and cause us to turn away from it and embrace you fully like the eleven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, let's take uh, just a moment to reflect and pray before the table of the Lord. Also give you an opportunity to go to the table in the back and grab the uh, elements if you don't have those already. I invite you to do that during this time. We just take a minute of quiet before we celebrate the elements together. A little different not having a communion table set up in the front with the elements on it. We've been doing it this way since we returned from pandemic land uh, isolation. I think it was in May, or maybe no, it was in June, I think, was our first Lord's table back. So June, July, August, September, October. Wow, five months already. That's amazing. But we have these to share together and... um, We need to pray and ask God uh, blessing on this little portion of special food as we remember Him. We uh, invite you, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, to participate. We, uh, as, you've, as some have asked before, especially uh, recommend that you have been baptized and then please feel free to participate. Uh, if you have not been baptized but are not refusing to do so, uh, just have not had opportunity, which I don't know how that could be with us having just a baptism a couple weeks ago, but um, you uh, would be okay to participate. <clears throat> be cautious, however. 
that you do not participate in an unworthy manner, whatever sort that might be, and your conscience may be able to uh, give you guidance about that from the Word of God. So, I'm going to ask uh, Brother Drew, could I ask you to pray for the bread, please? All right, I'm going to ask Drew. Let's listen in as he prays for the bread. Amen. And that same night in which our Lord was betrayed, we said this morning actually, again, that He took bread and broke it and told them to eat it in remembrance of Him. For that was His body which was broken. So, I'm going to, as I hope you will, open up the top part of your packet there and take out that very thin wafer. And as you do that, let us, if we're all ready, do what the Lord told us to do, to eat it in remembrance of Him. Would there be another brother who would stand to their feet and give thanks for the cup? Thank you, John, for that prayer. Again, Jesus took one of the cups of the supper and took it and said this to the disciples, this is, my, this is the new covenant, rather, in my blood, which is shed for the remission of your sins, the remission of the sins of many. And he said, drink all of it in remembrance of me. Let us do that together, please.
Our Lord, the bread and the cup have been multiplied, as it were, to feed not just the eleven, not just five thousand, but multitudes over the years which have believed in Christ and taken of this memorial symbol of the bread and of the cup. And Lord, we thank You for sharing that with us, that which pictures the true bread from heaven, the true spiritual nourishment, the true life-giving flow, which is the exalted, precious, holy, perfect, divine Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. We acknowledge Him. Lord, however imperfectly we do that, we pray that in Your grace and mercy you will see that our hearts are genuine before You, that we wish to be pleasing in Your sight through Jesus Christ our Lord, and that our conduct would be fitting for believers who have partaken of such a holy remembrance. So watch over us, I pray, in these upcoming days. May we adorn the doctrine of God our Savior with all good conduct, with all good works. And Lord, may we have some opportunities, as I even had earlier today, to share the Gospel of Christ with someone unsure of what it means. Lord, give each one of us somebody like that in our lives this coming week that the message of the Gospel, the hope of the Gospel, the fear-destroying truth of the Gospel would come anew to the life of someone in our sphere of influence. Lord, for those who are working in these days, I pray You'd prosper their work outside of the home. For those, Lord, who work in the home, I pray likewise that You would prosper their work in the home and that each of us would have a sense of satisfaction at where You have placed us and how You have allowed us to serve and be deeply grateful for the many blessings and benefits that You have bestowed. Until the Lord returns, help us to be patient and to wait with great anticipation and expectancy the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We pray in His name. Amen.